You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 93. I'm your host, Sarah Head, and I'm joined today with my co-hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. Today we're speaking with Von Haydenfelt from Far Out Expeditions. Vaughn is the president of the Friends of Cedar Mesa, where Bears Ears is located, and he's been a guide and interpreter there for 30 plus years. Vaughn is our expert on rock art for the region, and he's joined us today to discuss the state of Bears Ears as a national monument, and to discuss the rock art that's in Bears Ears. Vaughn tells us a bit about what rock art is, the different ways that it can be produced, the variety that's within Bears Ears, and some of the interactions he's had with the Fringe dealing with the rock art. Get ready to think critically. Going to the pub when the day is spent. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am joined today by Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going, guys? Well, I mean, I'll take that one first. I'm just getting over the flu, ha- having received the flu shots and all, and it's it, it kicked my butt for a, a good week, and I'm still hoarse. I'm still affecting my Lauren Bacall voice here, but uh, don't get the flu, whatever you do. <laughs> but I'm back in classes um, this week coming up, so we'll see how that goes. Well, that's nice. good. I'm uh, I'm teaching. I'm doing things. I'm getting over something. And you're busy. Yeah, I'm busy, and I'm back. So yay, yay, yay to and, some of us. And today we have a special guest with us. We have Von Haydenfeld um, from Far Out Expeditions, and he is the president of the Friends of Cedar Mesa, where Bears Ears is located. Uh, Vaughn has been a guide there for 30 plus years, and he is our expert on rock art in the area, which is a topic that we have wanting have been wanting to discuss for a long time on this show. Vaughn, thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome, Sarah. Yeah, we're especially excited about you being here. We have talked about Bears Ears before, really focusing on the various legal issues with the designation of the monument and the cutting back on the monument. And so it's great to hear it. And I've been there uh, a week here and a week there in parts of the area that's now designated as Bears Ears. But it's great to have somebody on who actually lives in the area and has devoted 30 years of his life to uh, the preservation and study of the place. So uh, welcome. Well, thanks. It's a, a pleasure at one point in time, uh, Bears Ears, the original Bears Ears National Monument came right up to virtually my backyard. Oh, is now, that right? We're in the mode of uh, a new administration that has uh, done a 85% downsizing of, of the original National Monument. So it's not right in my backyard at the moment, but we're uh-huh. hoping that that will reverse itself eventually. Yeah. And Vaughn, would you just clarify for everybody that the, the lands in the original designated monument, these weren't taken away from anybody. This was all federal property in the first place, right? Correct. There's this misconception that the feds came in here and, and took people's land. These lands, as you as you just said, have always been federal lands. You know, they could be managed by BLM or Forest Service or National Park Service, whatever. But uh, there was no land grab here taking land away from a state or private ind- individuals. What, now, what do you see as being – what's so special about this particular place that it deserves national monument status? Well, as you know, that uh, the Antiquities Act from 1906 uh, allowed presidents to set aside lands into national monuments to uh, especially protect cultural resources. And, and so President Obama, after uh, lots of uh, years of 
in his administration and, and his folks and the Secretary of Interior, Sally Jewell, all those folks, we worked really hard for several years to get to the point of uh, President, then President Obama, to declare this national monument. And, and it was his prerogative to do so, but he didn't do it willy-nilly, and he had people on the ground and people, the Secretary of Interior came out, I hiked with her. There was a lot of input before we came up with the boundaries of this monument. And what disappoints me greatly is the fact that if this particular monument, the Bears Ears National Monument, doesn't qualify for national monument status under the Antiquities Act, then there would be no place in this country that ever would. Uh, this place has more cultural resources than basically any other place in the United States. So if, 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 if the act is here to help protect cultural resources, you know, archaeological sites, things like that, this is the place. So we're, we're pretty concerned that uh, the new administration decided to decrease the boundaries and the size of, of the original monument by 85%. So you go from 1.3 million acres and drop 85% of that out of the picture. And I think that that's disheartening, and I and I think it's illegal. Right, and and there was just we we've covered this, but just to be clear, there were attempts to take this through the Congress for quite some time before going just straight to the Antiquities Act. Correct. Uh, correct. I my organization, Friends of Cedar Mesa, we worked for about three years on what was called the Public Lands Initiative with the state and local county people and all of that to try and create uh, protection and management. Of, of the bear's ears in, in a congressional mode. Uh, but as that kind of came to fruition, we discovered that certain players in that game, uh, particularly Utah legislators, uh, put a lot of poison pills in that proposal at the end. And there was no way, I don't think anyone in the environmental communities anywhere could accept it. So that's when we really put all of our cookies into uh, having President Obama create a national monument with his authority. Now, it, it's being here in the East, it's difficult to get a real feel for what local sentiment was, but you often, you will hear people saying that this was imposed from the outside because the people of Utah did not want this. <laughs> I mean, are there, do we have polls? Do we have any indication that that's true? Uh, no, it, it basically isn't true. I, I live in a small little town called Bluff, Utah. We're, we're only about 200 people. We're way down in the southeast corner of, of, of Utah. Uh, virtually everyone in our town supports the National Monument. You could come to my town and see welcoming signs to the Bears Ears National Monument. Uh, but if you go just north of me, and there, there's two other towns, Blanding and Monticello, which are also in the same county I'm in. And they're pretty much anti-monument. Uh, but if you look at the whole picture... One is we need to go back to that statement you, you brought up. These are public lands. These lands don't belong to the state of Utah or my local county people. Uh, they belong to everyone in this country. So we all deserve a say of whether this should be a national monument or not. Uh, I, you know, I can understand people who live right here, you know, feel like they, they grew up here and they own the place, but in reality, they don't. These are public lands. So, let, let's get real with this whole concept of, of uh, let's stop this concept of states taking back public lands. Right, right. And Vaughn, I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, the Navajo tacos at the Twin Rocks Cafe, how great are those? But, uh, well, you know, I don't know if they necessarily have the heart-healthy uh, look. 
but they're pretty great. <laughs> they're pretty good. When you know, I talk about um, the various sites in the United States, fifty sites that everybody should visit, and I do talk about the sites in and around Bluff. And I spend a little bit of time in Bluff. And when I when I give my the lectures up here in Connecticut, where every town, when you enter the town, it says founded sixteen fifty. They're really proud of the fact that these towns date to the 17th century. And I show, in whatever town I'm in, I show a photograph of the local sign saying, okay, you know, Avon, Connecticut established 1670. And then I show them the sign when you're entering Bluff that says established 650 AD. They say, these people are self-aware. They were here a long time before you Connecticut Yankees were. And people really appreciate that. And that's that's part of the part of the message of Bears Ears is that there there is this enormous time depth of people on that landscape. And there's this unique concentration of evidence of that. And that's what that's part of what this is all about, preserving that for for current and future generations but i love bluff uh, i'm jealous that you get to live in bluff thank you. we had quite a uh, controversy when we us business owners of bluff had that sign those welcome to bluff signs with the 650 ad carved in the stone didn't go over necessarily really well with pulling <laughs> the rock folks that wanted 1880 on the sign instead. is that right <laughs> that's they tried to get our signs removed actually by the state oh my god that's really but, interesting but we didn't break any laws when we put those signs up and we thought it was a really important thing to get people to visit our town to to actually kind of ask a question what does that mean Six right oh yeah and we just like to point out we have archaeological sites here that go all the way back to 13,000 years ago, but we just thought, let's pick a date, and we know there's a site that was excavated right on the edge of our town that, that dated perfectly to 650 AD, and we said, let's put that date on there. So these people will start thinking about, you know, there are people living here well before Anglos, like me, show right. up in this country. And that's, that's an exercise I do in my classes, back here east. I say, what's the longest continuously occupied community in what is today the United States? And kids in Connecticut will say, well, maybe it's it's Plymouth or maybe it's Jamestown because that's what their mindset is. And I say, well, no, Acoma, Pueblo, that's continuously occupied occupied since like AD 400. And there's Bluff continuously occupied since AD 650. And it does make the kids, my students actually begin to think and oh, oh yeah, I guess things don't all begin with European settlement. But that, there's a question though too that 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 are are there not significant historical sites? And by historical, I mean post-contact, post-colonial sites, Mormon sites that are saved oh, by being within the boundaries of Bears Ears. Yes, I mean there there is. We have the whole gamut. We have you know the oldest archaeological sites in the country. You know Paleo Indian sites, thirteen thousand years ago, all the way up to uh, you know, Ute and Navajo who come later than the Puebloan folks, you know, 1500s probably. Then we have Spanish who show up 1600s. Then we have the Mormons here who, who established the town I live in originally in 1880. Uh, yes, so that, so all of those histories are important. And, and I'm not trying to say, you know, one's more important necessarily than the other. The, but I would say that the prehistory, you know, the, the Native American history has a heck of a lot more depth. Mm-hmm. And, and it was pretty discouraging when we were trying to get this national monument um, declared by the, the Obama administration. We held a hearing here in Bluff in a, two years ago in July, quite hot. We had 1,500 people show up to Bluff, which was pretty amazing. Sal- Secretary Sally Jewell ran the, the meeting. 
And one of my county commissioners, who's a fellow up north here, he uh, he got up and, and his first part of his statement to Sally Jewell was, was well, you know, no one no one was here until we came here in 1880 and settled this place. Wow. And there was a lot of Native Americans, particularly Navajos. <laughs> uh, and you could see a lot of questioning going on of what did that guy just say? And and later I talked to Sally Jewell about that. And, and she, she said, yeah, she had a little trouble keeping a straight face up at the, you know, the head of the meeting when that guy blurted that out. So we need to get people to think that, you know, maybe you look at your ancestry from, you know, I guess I'm supposedly Dutch German or something like that. You know, I actually consider myself, and I'm not trying to be rude, but I consider myself a Native American. I was born in this country. So I think everything that is in this landscape is important to me. It doesn't have to be my direct ancestors, but it's part of my landscape. It's part of my cultural being in the United States. So we should look at all of this past history as as important and connecting all of us together on this landscape. Well, Vaughn, can you give us a little bit of uh, the the prehistory of Bears Ears? Um, You've kind of touched on it as you've been speaking here, but can you pretend like you're taking us on a tour and start us at the beginning there? I mean, what are the most significant sites that you point out to visitors when they come to get a tour of the area? Well, one thing you should know is is the original boundaries of the Bears Ears. We conservatively, archaeologists, uh, estimate that there's at least 100,000 archaeological sites. Okay, so that's pretty significant. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot here. If you, if you think of uh, the earliest sites, we have definite evidence of what we call Clovis man or earliest Paleo-Indian man here. Nice. You know, so they, they were roaming around here 13,000 years ago, and all the megafauna was here, the mammoth and giant sloths and, and all of that. So, so that was a different place here. Mm. If I were in Bluff 13,000 years ago, I'd be probably standing in a limber pine forest. Now it's more of a desert. Uh, so you have earliest man sites that we have recorded here. And then you have what we call archaic people after that. Once the megafauna dies out, things warm up, dry out. So that goes for a long time period from about 6,000 BC to 1,000 BC here. Then we have a, we switch to a cultural time period we call the basket maker. I just had uh, many of the Puebloans I just took out recently to show bear's ears to had a little problem with us archaeologists saying basket maker because in their opinion, basket makers are, are the, it's it's them. Right. It's their earliest ancestors. And why are we calling them basket makers and not Pueblos? And they have a pretty good case there. So anyway, we, we call them early basket makers. And then eventually when corn beans and squash all show up and ceramics and and all those things, and they become agriculturalists, then we start calling them Puebloans. And so we have the whole Puebloan phase here, all the way to about 1300 AD. And then things are happening here. Uh, you can have controversial um, ideas of, of what caused people to migrate out of here. But by 1300, basically, all the, the Native Americans migrated south. They did not disappear. They just moved south. Uh, and they all basically still claim, you know, that their ancestry comes from this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, I take people out into the landscape and I think we already talked rock arts a real, real kind of, uh, interest to me. We also have all the ruins, you know, the habitation sites of people through time, right? which people, you know, some people cliff ruins, things like that, that are, that are 
pretty sexy and you know people come here to just see those type of things for me the rock art is kind of gets my juices flowing more because for me it's the closest you come to the to pre prehistoric human presence i mean someone with their hands created th this imagery on the rock it could be painted it could be pecked or scratched into the rock surface but but a you know a human was trying to communicate something on that on that surface and Art. so it kind of gets me you know, jazzed up. I love just hiking around trying to find new rock art images. Uh, is rock art in, in Bears, in the Bears Ears area, is rock art near where people lived? Is it sort of out of the way? Could you sort of basically give us like, you know, there's a hundred thousand sites. You can't talk yeah. about everything, but like, is there any kind of basic breakdown for what we're talking about when we're talking about rock art? You mentioned there's also paint, there's also pecking, mm -hmm. um, but what are we talking about? Okay. So, you know, there's two basic styles of rock art. Yeah. You have pictographs, which are painted. You have petroglyphs, which are pecked or incised. Uh, and there's no time differentiation between those two. One is an okay. earlier, later than the other. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can find uh, a lot of, I mean, we are just covered with rock art in this in this region. Some people now don't like the term rock art, by the way. Why? Because uh, uh, somebody maybe with too much time on their hands decided that they weren't doing that imagery for rock for art's sake. I think uh, it's a little politically mm, too correct. But if if you don't like rock art, you can call it rock imagery or rock communication is another term people are starting to 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 use. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So, so I still use rock art a lot. So rock is located is is within all sorts of different zones uh, where they live. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's uh, set up to where maybe there's a travel route, uh, so it might point you, you know, in the right direction to get someplace. Uh, so there's a lot of different reasons and locations for rock art. Uh, we can't necessarily say we know what. Right. Right. Which, you know, the idea that like, oh, art doesn't communicate is interesting to, to say the least. Uh, I'm not, you're saying that the people are like, we can't call it art. We have to call it communication. I'm like, yeah, it's, have you, it's have funny. you ever seen, have you ever seen art? I'm just saying. Yeah. It's, it's funny how it's become a pejorative. It's, it's, it's as if we're saying it's not important. It's merely art, which just blows my mind. That's all, it's art. You go to a museum, you see something, they're telling you something. It's not just for, for decoration. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's iconography. You know, the, there's this beautiful Russian iconography. The, you know, from the Orthodox Church. Well, Sotheby's, I think, once in a while, sell for a considerable amount of money for art. But I don't believe if you want to take that position, I doubt if those people that did, you know, religious iconography were doing it for art. They were communicating, too, but right. you seem to be able to call that up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the, you, you said that there, that there's no sort of like, you know, people are like, oh, the rock, the pecking must come first. And there, there's not that. But what's the, how old do we have? surviving art in the area well if we have one contentious kind of uh, rock art image here that you know different experts have different opinions i i believe it's the oldest rock art in north america national geographic announced it a few years ago some you know rock art experts have studied it uh, i had been taking clients there a friend of mine actually discovered this rock art image many years ago it's of a mammoth really yeah, and it's and it's difficult to see, and it has a an archaic bison superimposed over the top of it. Huh. Uh, so it's just outside of the town of Bluff, and and if it's true, then it would be most rock art in North America. It would be at least twelve thousand years, right? Yes, 
so possibly, and that that mammoth image was, was in the original Bears National Monument, but it's been taken out. Oh, wow, that's so I good. just like to point that out. Yeah. So we've lost a lot of you know a lot of archaeological sites have been removed. Anyway, uh, so so we start with that would be the oldest, but but if you don't agree with trying to dispute it one way or another. It's really solid that we certainly have what we call archaic rock art here, 6,000 BC. Mm-hmm. And, so that's, uh, that's still pretty old. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's plenty old. Uh, uh, and then the latest, I mean, you know, obviously we get, we get rock art today. Unfortunately, I call it, you know, vandalism and graffiti. Uh, there are still people doing damage to rock art sites here and scratching their names and little lovey-dovey hearts and things like that, unfortunately. Uh, but we we have some of the finest rock art in North America here with, within the Bears ears. What's interesting is in some places where you find um, people riding on horseback, well, you know that you're talking about, what, 16th or 17th century, no no older than that, um, because, of course, it was reintroduced by the Spanish. Okay. Uh, um, but And then that, that that's an interesting kind of a side issue, this whole issue of gringo glyphs. Where there's rock art that dates to the to the what the six the six hundreds and seventeen hundreds, and at this point people say, well, at the time they were put on those rock faces, it was graffiti, it was vandalism, but now it's four hundred years old, so it is itself a kind of petroglyph, or it is a kind of art of historical interest. So yeah, there's a lot of that that's important. I spent nine years working on a project here, an archaeological project of recording historic signatures from the 1800s. There were a couple of expeditions by the Weatherills here who were given credit for like discovering Mesa Verde and places like that. But they came over here and went into some canyons and did a lot of excavation. They left their signatures with dates and things like that in the the alcove excavated. Uh, If we hadn't had those signatures, we would not have been able to go back east to the museums and do reverse archaeology and actually figure out wh- where those artifacts came from. And mm. and everyone should know that the Antiquities Act in this nation that protects uh, cultural resources on our public lands uh, covers anything on our public lands that's 50 years or older. So even a tin can, if it's been laying there over 50 years, you really shouldn't pick it up because it's going to tell us a story of someone who was there at that time period. And it could be important. Well, let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, we're going to maybe hit up some more of Vaughn's favorite pieces of art that are inside of the Bears Ears National Monument. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hey everyone, and we are back and we are still talking with Von Haydenfeld, and he is here with us to talk about rock art in Bears Ears National Monument. Um, Von, can you tell us, because you mentioned this in the last segment, can you tell us how the artwork or how the rock art is getting dated or how we're figuring out how old this rock art is? Sure. It, that's probably one of the trickiest things. And and actually, you would probably notice for a long time period, archaeologists typically avoided rock art because they didn't know what to do with it. And mm-hmm. 
they loved excavating and things that they could date with with the classic uh, dating processes we have in archaeology. But plainly, there there are people who started to take on rock art. Particularly, it seems like more women than than men. Matter of fact, uh, so some of the leading rock art archaeologists that I work with are, are incredible women. People like Sally Cole, in, for instance, who lives in this region. Anyway, uh, so if you're trying to date rock art, you have to go about it in some systematic ways, typically. One is to spend a lot of time within a region and record as much as you can. That helps. Then, you know, uh, recording rock art can involve drawing it and photographing it and, and doing site maps and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But then you, as, you're, as you're recording rock art, you should always be looking at things that possibly are datable, like artifacts. Maybe, you know, the rock art site is on a cliff face and laying around the base of the cliff face might be a bunch of like broken ceramics, pottery, or things that we already can date really well in the archaeological record. And you got to be really careful because we know there are, there are rock art sites where people have revisited them through time. So just because maybe you find a datable piece of pottery at the base of a rock art site, you can't just immediately say, oh, well, the people who did this pottery made this rock art. But if you study enough within a region, and it seems like every time I see this particular rock art image, gosh, there's this there's just pottery there. Eventually, you can kind of start deducing, you know, that, oh, hey, I bet that's made by that time culture of, of folks. Uh, there are dating methods, like, say, if you had a pictograph that had vegetable pigments, you can carbon-14 the vegetable right. pigments. Uh, you can get relative dating with archaeo... Screwing up my... Archaeomagnetism? Yeah, yeah, not ground penetrating radar outside with ground penetrating. Yeah, archaeomagnetics will, will, will read... You know, how much mineral contents in, in the desert varnish on a petroglyph site, for instance. Right. If do you ever do you ever get any of the icons from the rock art on pottery? Like, is there any crossover? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you, could a, take, you could use that as well. One of the really, really cool stories there, are, you're familiar with the, uh, is it the Pilling figurines? These are found in, in um, Utah. I yeah. think they're in a museum in Price, right. and they have these right. these kind of stereotypical trapezoidal bodies. There, are, I don't know, sixteen of them, and the, their bodies, the yeah, they look they look very similar to the the tra- trapezoidal bodies of the Fremont petroglyphs. And so the co- the connection is made between and those figurines were in a, a datable context. They were discovered. Yeah, they were with, in a Fremont site. Right. Oh, these are these are pretty cool. So yep. this is the, yeah, they are, aren't they? And I'm, the, the, I'm looking at them right now. The C14 dates are something like a thousand years ago, and so the assumption is, well, they're, if if the if those if that style is unique to that time period, then the rock art that looks like these figurines is probably dating to the same period. And it's not even just the shape; it's it's the the necklaces and the jewelry. Again, are replicated face, face paint, like banded face paint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's very cool. You know, for instance, right outside of town, there's a major rock art site, and and on one of the images is a desert bighorn sheep, which is a very common animal depicted in rock art here throughout a long time period. But right above the sheep is a guy kind of on his side shooting a bow with an arrow into the sheep. Well, okay. we know that the bow and arrow here didn't show up until around 500 AD. So that rock art probably isn't earlier than 500 AD. Right. Uh, so, there, so there are actual items in rock art sometimes that we can look sure. at and go, oh, that, that's a, an atlatl spear. And, and we know that, you know, they use that for a long time period, but then it got replaced with bow and arrow. Uh, so there, there are a lot of these different items, too, that we can associate. Uh, there, there are uh, uh, styles and motifs of rock through time, kind of time periods 
people are held within pretty strict cultural bounds. I don't think you would find rock art like maybe we would think of a, a street graffiti where somebody kind of wakes up in the morning, they just had a dream and they go, God, I'm draw that on the wall. If you look at rock art here, it stays within very restricted boundaries. There's conventions. Yes, of cultural time periods, styles and motifs, a repetition <laughs> of those things. So, you know, once you get kind of used to, oh, gosh, I see that particular, I, you know, image at that time period. Uh, eventually, you kind of start and walk through the landscape. You go, oh, that that was, you know, the Pueblo One folks in, in you know, 950 A.D. did that that type of design or whatever. Yeah. This is, I just, we, my students are, it's due later this week. They were doing an iconography exercise, very intro where I'm actually not showing, I'm not telling them what they should be finding. I'm showing them like 30 monuments for, or depictions of monuments from Yash Chilan, from the Maya city. And the thing they start to realize, if I look at a lot of this, I start to see things that if I just look at one, you know, a lot of iconography is just seeing a hell of a lot of things and like a lot of experience. I mean, there's more to it than that, but like that's, you can't not do that. And you were saying part of how you study this is you just record a lot of it. Right. Yeah. The other thing is that we should not dismiss Native Americans oral, you know, I've talked to a lot of Puebloans who would, you know, come to this area and they look at our rock art and they feel that, you know, certainly their ancestors did the rock art and they're still creating rock art. And so sometimes is doesn't the question is, does an oral tradition stay the same through time? So that image, you know, maybe a few thousand years ago, does it still have any meaning today to those people? So you have to be a little careful of that. But we should be listening also to to people who claim ancestry to that rock art. Uh, then there's, there's another kind of thing that, that I buy into, not everybody buys into it, and it's called trance state or entopic theories of right. rock. And, and that's where scientists have studied humans anywhere in the world, basically. If you go into a trance and do however you want to induce it, drugs, lack of sleep, food, whatever, we all as humans basically in a trance see the same imagery. We see spirals, centric circles, zigzags, dotted lines, grid patterns. And if you start looking at rock art everywhere in the world, those images exist everywhere. So there are some people, including myself, who feel that some of the rock arts created by people who have gone into trances, they come out of the trance, they've seen those images, so they're putting them you know, on the rock art. It does not explain to us what meaning they might give to those images, but it could explain the possible commonality throughout the world of certain imagery in rock art just because of this trance, entopic trance state uh, thing that all humans go through. So, Vaughn, what you're saying is the aliens put these ideas into No, I'm pretty sure that's usually heads. what I'm saying. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> See, I feel like I, one I've of us had this that argument. And look, it's also you know, what Graham Hancock says. If you look at if, if you look at some of the, the Barrier Canyon um, art, there's these elongated bodies and people yeah. have arms and legs, and yeah. people say, "Oh yeah, when I used to take LSD, everybody looked like that." So maybe we are tapping into this this common hallucination that people have. But then again, I also wonder: yeah, what, do we need that? Was Salvador Dali on drugs? Was he in a trance state, or was he just like super creative? Was Picasso with cubism? Is that do we do we need something like that to explain human the, the infinite capacity of human beings to be creative and imaginative? And I just so I don't know that I buy the argument um, because certainly among modern artists, it's it's we don't we don't look for some. Um, what neurophysiological explanation for their, their creativity. So, yeah, and I'm not trying to say that all 
all rock art's done by people in a trance. But uh, I think there might be a, a portion of that. that Maybe, might, yeah. like, my, my favorite piece of art, my favorite piece of art in out right out. Well, it's in Bluff is in the Sand Island campground where the sheep is uh, playing the flute. The yeah, that's sheep, a great one. Sheep Capelli playing a flute. Yeah, which is just amazing and awesome. And I always point to that and I say, when people say, "No, all all rock art has to be representational," because you know, people these these are primitive people and they're just painting or drawing what they see. Um, and and there's the Von Daniken crowd who says these spaceships and UFOs. And I look at the the bipedal flute playing sheep and say, so is that representational? Uh, they Ken, really, yeah, Ken, wear sheep man. Uh, well, there is a wear sheep man. Yeah, I guess wear sheep man. We always count on Jeb. For our audience, we've done an episode about wear sheep man. We're just gonna leave that there. Okay. <laughs> I'm just gonna make wear sheep man our mascot. I just like I've just made this so decision. I got a, I got a question for Vaughn because I've seen stuff in I've seen a lot of rock art during my my 50 sites Odyssey. But but here's the thing. There was some imagery that I saw in Bears Ears that I didn't see anywhere else. And I can't even describe one of them. You know the Wolfman panel? Yes. Um, there are these kinds of – what do they look like? There's kind of circular. Yeah, they're called they, globe circles. Well, what the, now like light bulbs or avocado looking things? What the hell are those? Okay, you you were correct because light bulbs is an excellent description. They they don't yeah. uh, tend to go outside of this region here. Right. They're yeah. quite associated with the San Juan River drainage. They are basket maker time period, uh, but if you go farther north, and basket makers were farther north, so they didn't do these lobe circles. So right. what we here here's my take on it. You'll get other people's you know other impressions, but the late basket makers were living in, in a structure called a pit house. And the pit house, if you looked at the footprint of a pit house, it looks just like that. Sure. It's circular yeah. with antechamber. So that's my feeling of what that represents. But right. we'll have other ideas. We know that it's a really an important image because there have been basket maker burials, for instance. There was one with uh, around, you know, in the burial was a carved wooden lobe circle about four inches in diameter with inlaid shell. So that meant something was really important to him, but we're not 100% sure what what it means. And it usually occurs in pairs too. That's another right. thing of unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And pairing is a big thing for Puebloan people, by the way. Twinning, Let's, I should say twinning more than pairing. They have lots of twin things in their mythologies. Well, that's a big thing in, throughout the Americas. Right. So, Vaughn, you mentioned this uh, when you and I were talking, but and I think this is a good time to transition into it. How is how is rock art not like written language? Well, these folks that lived here do, creating this rock art at that time period, they had not come to the stage of a written language. If we probably hadn't shown up and kind of messed up the world, they, I think they were getting, you know, they were heading that way for sure. So rock art for, for them was a, was certainly a communication thing, but it probably covers a big gamut of, of reasoning from everything from maybe conjuring up, you know, rain, which I think, I think there's a ton of rock art that, that is doing, is talking about rain. If you were to go to Puebloan folks today and go watch some of their ceremonies, the the highest percentage of their ceremonies is all about rain. So I think rock art's conjuring up rain. I think fertility is another one. Good hunting. All of those things, I think, are being depicted in rock art and and communicating those things, you know, uh, 
and and maybe even telling stories. We have a rock art panel with you know 138 people uh, depicted coming in four directions to a circle on the on the wall. It, to me, it's talking about some big event that occurred here. And it must have been pretty important. Now, but I couldn't just, I personally, who have no experience with rock art, I couldn't just go out there and just start at one end of a rock and start reading all the way across left to right and have a clear picture of what's going on, though. That's no. not how rock art works. Well, but there are th- people who think it does work that way. You you can buy some some pretty funky books or things like that. Or I've, I've been at rock art sites before and, and had some, quote, expert with a group basically doing that you know kind of reading it from left to right or right to left and i've been kind of appalled but there 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 is a there is a, a small group of folks that you know i mean a lot of them believe yeah people came down and a lot of this rock art and what part of the thing that they're coming from and if you look at a lot of human forms in rock art or anthropomorphs we, we would say they have crazy heads, things going on on, on on their heads. And what that is, is masks and, and headdresses. But for some of the fringe group, they look at that as being space helmets and things like that. But all you need to do is go down to Hopi and, and, and visit ceremony and they come up out of their kivas and they all got, you know, incredible masks and headdresses on. So, yeah, I mean, I do not believe you can read it like like a storybook. But there are a few people who tie certain images together and say, oh, gosh, this is a map. And if you followed this, you'd find water and all these so things. So what I heard I is there's treasure buried out there. And if I read the rock art correctly, it will lead me to it. Uh, yeah, there's kind of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's called it's called it's called uranium. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so Vaughn, one other thing, because you know we we are a show that talk about the fringe, and we kind of got you on that. Um, what is the as we're going out from this segment? What is one of the most creative interpretations that you've encountered while giving tours? Uh, I did have a one of those kind of alien factions once that kind of surprised me, and it was uh, there was an image that kind of. Well, they thought it was a guy inside this container, and it was a spaceship, and it was blasting off. Uh, I don't know what the image really was representing, but I had trouble getting the spaceship out of it. And above it was a thing that, if you looked at it right, it, I guess it sort of did look like a ray gun. I don't think it had anything to do with a ray gun either. Uh, That's probably the craziest, you know, little rendition of a couple of rock art images by, by uh, a couple of folks I guided one day. Hey, Vaughn, is Natural Bridges, Natural Laundry, is that... In Bears Ears, uh, Bears Ears came up to it and kind of surrounded it and gave it a nice new buffer. Been okay. basically taken yeah. away. The only reason I bring that up is that um, there are young Earth creationists who claim that there's a, a an ancient image of a brontosaurus on oh, one yes. of the natural bridges in Natural Bridges National Monument. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's pretty bunky. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, Moab. There's there's many places around that have. Uh, renditions like that and most of them have been debunked and and there's there's a quote elephant or mammoth up in in moab too, yeah but is there, proven. That, that's actually in one of the books i've read spring there, break there. coming up i'm gonna be in um i'm gonna be in utah and i'm visiting the black dragon uh pet um um pteranodon or pterodactyl oh good for you yeah <laughs> Gotta see that. Yeah. Ah, yes, the pterodactyl. Well, we'll, we're expecting a full report on that when you get back there. Of course, if I don't get, like, taken away by a pterodactyl. By eaten by the pterodactyl. (laughs) Let's go to break real quick, and when we'll come back, we'll continue this discussion. 
The Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with T Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop. Hey everyone, and we are back, and we are still talking with Von Haydenfeld. Still talking about rock art out at Bears Ears. And Von, can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, you work as an interpreter there, you take people around as a guide. Can you tell us about some of the dangers of trying to force our perspectives, our own personal perspectives onto the art that we're seeing versus what it was meant to represent when it was created? Sure. I know one thing everyone should know when I've, I've been blabbing here about rock art, and particularly if you went with me out in the field and I stand in front of a rock art panel, I start pointing at things and say, this is a, you know, this is a certain kind of object, or I think this is a time period that this rock art's done. You probably are, have just as good a validity of saying you're full of it. And you're, you're a white guy trying to get into the brain of, of someone, you know, thousands of years ago with a total different worldview. And, and so for, some people look at us when we're when we're studying and recording and working on rock and trying to, I guess you could say, decipher it if possible. Uh, look at us and go, "You're just crazy." I mean, you're, you're you know, some Puebloan people who whose ancestors did the rock art. I think they look at us sometimes and go, "You're full of it," but I'm not going to really tell you what I think about it. Uh, so you need to take that in, into consideration of of anyone trying to to come up with, you know, we're never going to get the Rosetta Stone of rock art and start reading all of these things and be 100% definite of, of what we're looking at and what that person, the only the only person who knows what that means is the person who actually put it on the rock originally. But we, we love at least trying to come up with our thoughts. And the cool thing about rock art is no one really can disprove your theory. <laughs> so I, I, when I talk to my students, I, I sometimes say, not talking about North American, but looking at like Paleolithic rock art from, you know, Eurasia and whatnot, is that there seems to be almost as many interpretations of rock art as there are people that yes. look at rock art. Yes, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a reality to it. But on the other hand, you were already taught like, look, there are certain things we think we can know, some others we don't. And there's a lot of sort of variation there. And I always I always tell my clients that, you know, this is what I think, but it's not a hunt. You know, this is not a sure deal here. And you can come up with your own thoughts on all of this. And, and you, you could be just as valid or more so than I am. Yeah, I think that ultimately too is that maybe we don't, we shouldn't be looking at these things as ciphers that we are, we're obliged to translate or puzzles to solve, but it is art and it's art that we can appreciate for its beauty. You know, if I knew absolutely nothing about European history, I knew nothing about Christianity. If I, if I was confronted by the, the, the Pieta, I could appreciate it for the immense beauty of it for the, skill that was applied in its rendering and the imagery and I, I would I could still find it moving even if I would have to admit I am not of the culture or of that time period so I can't tell you exactly what it meant to those folks and that's I, that's 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 a problem I understand but nevertheless and really what we're getting at ultimately in terms of wanting to preserve these places it's it's there is a, an inherent beauty and majesty in all of these things and you don't have to be of that the same culture or the same time period to appreciate at least that aspect of it yeah I think there's a common uh, human link here uh, you know of, of people trying to communicate 
and and represent things and i think i think we all sort of get it i mean yeah we don't have to read it you're totally correct but we can certainly appreciate the skill and some of it's really beautiful oh yeah you know all of that and and we got to be also concerned about how fragile it is uh and pay attention to what we're doing when we're visiting these places and we're you know now with the bears ears national monument uh you know more people come here than ever before even though it's been downsized the the word is you know is out and i have people calling me and showing up and they don't even know what the bears ears national monument is but they've come here to see it and sure so we're getting a whole new you know group of folks who have no education about what you do when you visit cultural resource sites, uh, you know, how careful you have to be that you shouldn't be touching rock art or lean ruined walls, all of those, those things, all those basic things that all of us probably just assume is what you do. Yeah. I, I was looking at a textbook today that shall go unnamed, and there was actually a discussion of how do I visit these sort, not just these kinds, but various kinds of sites. And I'm looking through and I'm like, wait, really? I'm like, yeah, people don't actually know this. No, no. Uh, they don't know that there's all these challenges that, you know, when people, particularly the like ruins, you know, uh, cliff ruins, things like that, you know, people are throwing all their kind of trash out in front called a midden. I'm sure you've talked about that in the past somewhere. And, you know, within those middens, uh, also for certain cultural time periods, those became uh burial areas and so you have all sorts of cultural material there and that's where most people on the inner site go tromping through and you don't really want to be doing that you're destroying uh the midden and things are start rolling out of the midden and and uh so if you don't know that though you just you know you just tromp straight up into the ruin so getting people to visit with respect and my organization friends of cedar mesa is spending a lot of time on that issue of of coming up with more educational things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've just purchased a building and we're building a, an education center here because we know that the, probably this will be in litigation, the Bears Ears, for a long period of time. So we're trying to take on, in a private sector way, a way to start educating people on what they should do when they come to visit this Bears Ears region. Uh, and we've had, you know, a year, well, two years ago, you know, somebody tried to saw off a, a, a rock art image on the cliff just outside of my town. And people were getting more graffiti now on, on rock art sites. And and so it's, it's a problem and it's a big concern and people just need to slow down and 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 have have the respect for past history, even if it's not your direct relatives. Before we move on uh, from this, though, since you've brought up the looting aspect of it, because I don't think people understand how frequent looting a rock art is. Can you talk about that a little bit? You were just mentioning how someone tried to saw off a piece of it. Um, how, how does how often does this occur? And do you ever see any kind of closure with when things get stolen? Unfortunately, there's not a lot of, uh, I don't think there's a lot of rock art uh, looting going on right around us at the moment. But it, it occurs within the Southwest occasionally in different places. Uh, there was quite a bit over towards the Grand Canyon of some time ago that was sawed in a big way, sawed off a lot of rocks. Uh, I think our looting is probably more uh, about cultural sites and ruins and, and digging burials and things like that, not as much looting of rock art per se. The, I think our issue more with rock art in general is people uh, putting graffiti over it or shooting at it. 
right? Uh, things like that. Probably shooting. Yeah. Okay, there are bullet holes all, all over a, a lot of very impressive rock art panels. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's That's amazing. It truly is. Well, I mean, I had a park ranger at Arches National Monument tell me, National Park, tell me that he, he caught teenagers vandalizing a beautiful piece of rock art. Um, they arrested him, brought him to the station, called their parents. And when the fathers arrived, they were angry at the um, the park rangers and claiming that, well, there was no sign there telling their kids that they couldn't leave graffiti. Can you imagine? Yeah, but it does occur. We get that same kind of thing here. That's a huge problem. It has been traditionally, certainly in the state of Utah, is the uh, will to prosecute people even when there's a really good case of, of vandalism or, or looting or whatever. Right. Uh, and, and this state does not have a tendency to uh, – you'll see a lot in the newspapers or information about it. It just doesn't get out. The people don't like to talk about it here. There was a huge tradition of, of excavating sites of, of, from a lot of locals in my region – through time, and they uh, don't really see any problem with that. You you do have to get a different mindset. If you go out digging up barracks of, of, of other cultures, you really have to start looking at those other cultures as not really people. And that's pretty hard for me to grasp, but uh, that that seems to occur quite a bit around here. Uh, and it, it's an issue, and, and we've had several major sites looted in the last you know years here. Uh, and very little prosecution. Gotcha. That's unfortunate. So, I mean, do we want to talk about? We we, we talked. We you know, previously on the podcast, we've talked about the naming of the monument and the the legal troubles. Vaughn, can you guys fill us in on what what's the status of Bears Ears right now? <laughs> is the the Trump administration is that a done deal that the thing has been eviscerated, or are we working hard to get that to get his edicts and Zinke's edicts removed? Well, it is a done deal at the moment with this president. So the BLM, for instance, who is the major land manager of, of the, quote, new pair of years or Sastya, uh, is already focusing on creating a, a management plan, which my organization will start you know, chiming in on. They're getting funding for this small little monument. Uh, so, yes, the, the administration is treating it like it's a done deal. Now, if you get... Uh, several organizations, including mine, that are that are have lawsuits pending against what is occurring. Uh, that will probably be in courts for a long period of time. So we're going to probably be in this crazy limbo that's going to not help our not help anyone. You know, the resources are really going to suffer during this time period. I do believe in my heart that we will win in the end, and and the Supreme Court will will uh, reinstate the bear's ears. It could happen earlier. You know, if we just get a new administration in, uh, the new administration could resend what Trump did. But that's a really bad road to be going down. If each president decides that he can just ignore the Antiquities Act whenever he wants, and if he likes that monument or not, uh, it's a terrible situation to put this nation into. So I'm hoping the courts will rule in our favor and say, Presidents have the right to create national monuments, but they don't have the right to make them go away. Right. Well, good luck with that. I, mean, I, I seriously do wish you the no. best of luck with that. The court cases can be very, very tricky and, like you yeah. said, take forever. You know, I, I was really disheartened when the new administration took over and, and, and President Trump uh, pulled uh, Ryan Zinke, our, our new 
Secretary of Interior to go and reevaluate a lot of these national monuments. And so the secretary, you know, came to Utah on his quote backpacking mission. He rarely met with any environmental organization during the whole time. He met with pretty much hung out with the opposition, uh, the state boys, the sagebrush rebellion folks. Uh, and when he did come to Bears Ears, his his main look at Bears Ears was flying over in a Black Hawk helicopter. Uh, he did a one little horseback ride and one short little walk. Uh, and then he, in a short period of time, decides that 85% of that monument can disappear. It's, it's, it's beyond belief to me that, that a Secretary of Interior could, could uh, look at this place and make a decision of eliminating 85% of the cultural resources that we were trying to uh, you know, protect. And my organization was one of the few that he actually met with on the environmental side. And I got 30 minutes with him when he came to Utah. And I started my little spiel like I maybe started here about talking about Bears Ears and the 100,000 archaeological sites. And he stopped me quickly and he, he said, wait a minute, 100,000 archaeological sites, how many of these sites have been recorded? And you guys are archaeologists, you know that that's, that's the process. And, and you... Uh, and a site has to have enough components. It's not just if you go find an arrowhead, that's a site. It has to have enough use components to call it a site. Well, we've only actually surveyed 8 to 10% of the land area of the Bears Ears, archaeologically surveyed it. And within that survey, we've recorded at this point 30,000 archaeological sites. We know that they're, you know, and if that's only 10%, we still have a lot to go. Well, uh, Secretary Zinke said, then that's what you really have. You have 3,000 sites in the Bears Ears. Oh, my God. So that, that's how my meeting started with <laughs> Secretary of Interior, and it didn't get a whole lot better. And it was disappointing. You know, His was not a statistically um, um, sophisticated interpretation. Oh, yeah. no, it's a very sophisticated interpretation, <laughs> Ken. It's just, yeah. Well, archaeologists would, would, would say there's only 30,000 sites in the Bears Ears National Monument. I can tell you that right now. Sure. And how they can then just decide how they're going to chop that huge monument down to this small little thing and think that they're protecting the cultural resources here is is hard for me to understand. Vaughn, when you're saying that they've chopped it down, does who owns the land now? It's still federal land. The, the feds didn't lose the land, but we lost the designation of a monument. For it's it. the matter of the activities that are permitted. So now we're going to go back into uh, the, the, the big area that got taken out of the Bears Ears now is open to oil and gas again. Uh-huh. Uh, gotcha. Uranium. Right. Uh, all of those type of things that we were hoping the place would get protected from. And those activities are, are clearly done by private corporations that get, in essence, permission to do it on public land. Correct. They, they Correct. Absolutely. Right. Now, people should know that the Bears Ears National, we wrote it right, Sally Jewell, matter of fact, wrote a big portion of the proclamation herself. Uh, we, we did not exclude grazing, uh, Navajo firewood gathering, and you know medicinal plant gathering, or uh, you know, you know, cattle grazing. We kept all and hunting. Those are all rights that were left in this monument. And you'll hear people saying that that's not the case. Well, they're they're misinformed. Navajo will still be able to collect firewood. You'll still be able to hunt there. You'll still be able to do all you know, graze cattle. All those things that were occurring before the monuments were written right into the proclamation. They would continue. Now, Vaughn, I don't want to sound super paranoid, and I don't know that you can answer this question. I'll, I'll do the, it for you, Ken. I'll the, company, the, <laughs> the companies that are going to benefit from going in there and doing more oil and gas exploration and uranium, 
were any of these companies large contributors to the um, the Trump campaign? Financial uh, contributors. I believe so, but I guess I, I you know. Well, we'll just I you know maybe the question we'll let we'll let Jeb is nodding his head right now. I can sense no, it. <laughs> industry uh, uh, spoke with uh, Ryan Zinke, and supposedly you know they, they uh, convinced him to take some areas out of the monument that were close to the areas they thought were important for uranium. Okay. The oil and gas thing. Uh, uh, the administration right now is opening basically all our public lands back up to oil and gas exploration. So there, it's not just bears ears; it's all over the place, and that's a major concern. I'm not, I'm not against oil and gas. I drive a big pickup truck. I use highways, but there are some places, you know, they just don't, just don't need to drill everywhere. And bears ears is one. It has so much in the way of cultural resources. It's an incredible landscape, and it's not rich in oil and gas anyway. So so let's let's keep our hands off of some of those places there. We you know, we're producing the heck out of oil and gas in this country right now. And do we need to open bears up to the oil and gas industry? I don't think so. And, you know, the philosophy you're espousing right now can be traced back to Teddy Roosevelt, who was, if I remember correctly, a Republican president of the United States. And he created the Antiquities Act. Right, exactly. Yeah. And Are you working with, with to say say that he's a, a big Teddy Roosevelt fan? <laughs> yeah, really. Are you working closely with another? I know there's a consortium of what is it, five or six tribes: Navajo, Hopi, um, Ute, the Zuni, and somebody else. Um, are you working with them in sort of these legal attempts to to um, uh, negate what Trump and they have attempted to do here? Yeah, there, there's a. I think there's four ba- basic lawsuits. Go- uh, pending now. My group, uh, Friends of Cedar Mesa, is joined with Southwest Archaeology, Patagonia Company, uh, the Professional Paleontology Nation. Uh, so Patagonia is involved. I know they got flack for an ad, but they're actually in a lawsuit. Yes. They, Interesting. They're Interesting. up front uh, uh, in our, our lawsuit with Friends of Mesa. Yeah, they, they, they are serious. Then you have the Navajo Nation has its own lawsuit. Then you have the Native American Coalition has a lawsuit. And then you also have uh, the you know Wilderness Society and some of those other folks have a lawsuit. So there's out of those four major lawsuits, you know, maybe they'll get combined eventually. And right now we're concerned because the federal government's trying to get them all moved to the state of Utah. Oh, yeah. Huh? Concerning to me. It will also increase our costs in the lawsuit because basically all the law firms that have filed these have filed them in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I'm being represented by a, a famous law firm who Teddy Roosevelt used to be belong to. And they're out of D.C. So uh, we hope that we can hold our ground. We hope that, uh, you know, there will be some something expedited. And we're hoping that there will be some stays that maybe will come in. To, to basically tell the federal government, until this is settled, do not open up oil and gas leases, some of those things. It would be great if we could at least kind of hold those off until the – I think it will go to the Supreme Court. And I think it's really important because this is not just about Bearsers. This is about the Antiquities Act of this nation. And if it goes down, you could lose places all, all over this country. So people should be really concerned and aware that uh, 
this is one of the biggest legal issues that has come along in a long time. And, and you know, it's actually why some of these big law firms, uh, some of them are doing these cases pro bono because they get one of the most important cases they maybe will ever present. Mm-hmm. Well, Vaughn, thank you very much for coming onto the show. And thank you for sharing with us what you know about the rock art and for giving us uh, this kind of first person update on Bears Ears itself. Um, Ken, do you have final thoughts on the matter? I mean, no, I mean, I think, Vaughn, thank you so very much. And I think ultimately the, the, the matter is... And we, we've got this gigantic country that's ex- incredibly rich, diverse, and that if we can't afford to set aside these pockets of land that, that when you add it all up, it's a small percentage of the, the landscape of the United States. If we can't afford to set those aside for his- to preserve our own history, um, it's, that's a pretty sad statement on the um, the on our future. And so let's let's preserve these things. Um, because they're worthy of preservation, they're worthy of study, and they're worthy of all Americans um, having a chance to celebrate the, this, the history of, of, of our country. So let's do that. Let's preserve Bears Ears. Yeah, thank you all. Yeah, thank you very much. And I, my last thought on this is this is the kind of stuff, you know, our show is often about we should be taking the past more seriously and here's people that do and don't. This is the reason why we should be taking the past and the study of it more seriously is stuff like that. Yes, Jeb is absolutely correct. And so is Ken and and Vaughn. Thank you so much. This has been a really great episode and it's kind of rounding out our trifecta on the Bears Ears National Monument and the events that are happening with the Antiquities Act. And thank you for being able to be that keystone in our little grouping here. So guys, thank you very much for joining me and I appreciate the call. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for supporting public land. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. You can find links to the items mentioned on the show at our website at www.archpodnet.com slash archiefantasies. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Be sure to share this episode with your friends on social media. Follow Sarah's Archiefantasies blog at www.archiefantasies.com. You'll also find the show on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, also at Archiefantasies. Music was provided by Archeosoup at Archeosoup Productions. Thanks again for listening. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it?